podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Serie Chronicles is a Media Chronicles production. The logical thing to do is not to take Manchester City toe-for-toe and actually like play a possession game, but rather sit a little bit deeper, be you know, the way that you would imagine this to go, a pragmatic type of game, and you counter-attack. And so this is more about efficiency and attack for me than it is about defensive prowess. It's two down, one to go for the Italian teams in Europe. Our hopes are falling week by week. Roma couldn't do it against Sevilla. Fiorentina, heartbreak in the final minute. Um, Well, I suppose it wasn't the final minute, given that never-ending injury time we got at the end of the match. Nearly the final minute uh, against West Ham. Mina is with me as always. We've still got Inter in the Champions League final to come, Mina. How are you feeling this morning after the Fiorentina defeat? Have you noticed that it's always Inter that has to rescue Italian football? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember 2010, we were going to lose the fourth place in the Champions League, right? Unless Inter defeated Bayern and we could delay it by a year. (laughs) And it was like they had to defeat Bayern to keep Italy relevant and have four spaces, you know? And I'm like, come on, guys. And they did it. And now it's on them again after the two others couldn't make it in the final. So into like, please do it for Italian football. Otherwise, it's just an, a bunch of Italian finals that we've all lost, um, European finals rather. So it's in your hands yet again to rescue the reputation of culture. But I honestly, you know, it was interesting because just before we started recording, you said that when, when you thought about which team was going to probably win most, most likely to win a European final, you thought of Fiorentina, I thought of Roma. How interesting. You didn't think Mourinho? Well, I think I think with Roma, it was just because they were playing Sevilla and Sevilla sort of win Europa League, don't they? So you just that was my one sort of counterthought. Interesting. But I, I, I'll tell you what, Mina, um, we we will definitely talk more about Fiorentina and the Conference League final. We're going to have a, a proper discussion about that game. But we reckon that probably people tuning in today are most wanting to hear about this Champions League final between Inter and Manchester City. So let's jump straight into that. It's been... Uh, it's been a frankly difficult week for me to be honest. I was supposed to go to Milan, to Milan, to go to Milan on Sunday night to cover the media day on Monday. Had two flights cancelled. Ryanair and Wizz Air, so I didn't actually get to Milan. I've been trying to make all sorts of chaotic um, fixes to speak to people as best I can this week. The the message coming from from Inter a lot. If I had to sum up the the theme of the Inter players' conversations, of course, we lots of individual conversations. Interesting. It's that they quietly back themselves, Mina. They definitely is like a quiet sort of thought amongst these Inter players that yes, City are the favourites. Yes, they're the best team in the world. And Zaghi said that, the best team in the world. But also, yes, we think we are capable of beating them in a one-off game of football. What do you think? I mean, just the big question first. Do you think this is a a lost cause or do you think Inter are are in this match? Okay, so... 
part of being a journalist is being a politician nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to be very <laughs> diplomatic in all your conversations. So I've done the Manchester City pod. I've done all of these, you know, podcasts for English TV mainly in which I'm like, well, obviously City is the better team. But here's the chance for me to be like myself a little bit more. <laughs> and I'm like, they're going to... The City fans aren't listening, Rina. They're not listening. <laughs> this is what I'm like. I'm like, yes. It's like, it's like you know, when you close the door, and I was going to say, if you're a woman and you take off your bra, but it's like, it's, sorry, it's just one of those where you can really just hang loose, you know, like, and just be yourself. <laughs> and this is, this is my safe space. That's what we are. It's bras off in here today. <laughs> yeah, bras off, let's chat, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> I've always done know how it goes down this way, guys. Oh, God, poor producer Simon is already leaving. <laughs> More cancellations on Patreon. <laughs> He's literally gone. He's gone. Has he actually? He's come back. Is it safe in here? Um, apology. <laughs> there are so often that I speak that Simon replies with TMI. <laughs> so, um, apologies. I didn't imagine. I didn't imagine it going that way. But I was oh just trying God. to explain that this is a safe space. You know, so. Mm-hmm. In my eyes, I'm like, listen, listen, bitch, you better win this. <laughs> this is how I want to speak to Inter right now. You know? And I'm like, I'm almost like losing my mind on this. Like, you have to rescue us in this last final. And you know what? I'm also quietly confident. You may think I'm crazy. Yes, I understand. They don't have the whiz kids of Manchester City. They don't have the finances of Manchester City. They don't have Pep Guardiola, who is apparently the world's greatest coach who is certainly one of the very best, greatest, oh, yeah, yeah, debatable. Um, <laughs> but I still think, I feel like Inter have enough to produce a challenge. And I think it's, that's all you need in a one-off game. Things can happen that you'll never see coming. And I think there's enough combative energy, enough quality in midfield, enough options up front to do damage. In all honesty, I went to the FA Cup final. I watched Manchester City live and they're just, in that particular game, and I do say it's that particular game because it's not like I've gone to all Manchester City games. So, you know, just having somebody like, you know, Fred, Casemiro and Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who was just very in the mood, who aren't really, I, I think, in fact, to have better players than those three, you know, like in, in, if I'm just comparing and maybe not Casemiro. I didn't find Manchester City to be all that amazing. I'm saying up against a physical team that is interested in trying to sort of be the underdog and and try to win. I honestly think that Inter are more than capable of doing some damage here, especially if in any way, shape or form, Manchester City start to doubt themselves or start to overthink this. And Istanbul is not an easy atmosphere. It is a very difficult atmosphere. And I think that it will be really interesting to see whether or not who, you know, what the crowd will be like. Because City have marveled at home. But away and in different locations, when they don't have all of their home support, there have been some missteps at times. So whereas Inter have actually thrilled away from home. So I, I'm interested to see. Hey gang, just wanted to let you know that you can now get a free 14-day trial of our Chronicles Defosi Patreon membership. Subscribe now for free for 14 days to get access to all of our full episodes, solo minisodes, bonus content, even behind-the-scenes bonuses like our chats about football, and of course, our chats about life in general. You can also get the entire back catalogue of Serie A Chronicles content.
So head over to cdrchronicles.com forward slash Patreon and subscribe to the Chronicles of Fozy membership for free. I'm actually super curious to see like how things play out with the crowd. I, I In general, I expect English fans to travel in bigger numbers when there's Champions League games because they tend to, they tend to travel in big numbers. They tend to be loud. It's frankly, there's, there's some, just like a parallel to the, to the, reality of the league sometimes uh there's more disposable income uh in england in general so fans can travel more easily i think that's one of the things we saw with the west ham and fiorentina last night someone was asking me about um why there were so many sections in the fiorentina and it's because it's expensive it costs a lot of money to get there one of the many many subplots this game i was i was looking at earlier of course, you've got Hakan Çalanoglu, who's the Turkey captain, playing for Inter. Um, on the other hand, Gundogan, who has got Turkish parents, plays for Germany, Turkish parents, is also playing for City. So I don't know if the if the Turkish crowd will pull one way or the other. I, I, I'll be curious to see it. But um, I think Çalanoglu is certainly hoping he might get a favourable reception. I think one of the things that sort of has really struck me with Inter's approach to the game is... I mean, first of all, sort of this thing which you just talked about, Mina, the, 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 the pressure. I thought Federico Di Marco spoke to it really well. He's so, in, he's so easy to warm to Di Marco yes. because he is just this fan, like his fan who's managed to sort of go and, and become a really important player for his team. And I do think he's underestimated quite how good he's been for, for them this season when you think that he's only behind De Bruyne and Vinicius Jr. for assists in the Champions League this season. But he... um. He said at one point on on Monday, well, you know, f- for us, it's a dream to win the Champions League. For them, it's an obsession. And I thought that was sort of one of those little comments you think is just a quietly, again, just shifting the pressure off us and onto you, you know, like we're just here for the dream. Like we're, we're chasing something that would be incredible for you guys. It's like you need it. And yeah, I, I do think that's an interesting dynamic, how that, how that affects the game. Do you think they should be quietly confident? Maybe it's worth sort of looking at sort of different areas of the pitch and, and, and asking these questions, because I do think if you go player for player, it's hard to make the case that City are stronger. They, they are. Of course, of course, they're stronger, of course. But you still sort of want to look at, at battles that are going to happen on the pitch. And, you know, I, I think that without question for me, one of the, the battles that I'm most intrigued about, and I don't necessarily think breaks well for Inter, is, is Erling Haaland against presumably Francesco Cervi, like y- you assume that obviously City are, are a fluid team. They don't keep completely static roles, but Haaland is very much a centre forward. And Acerbi has very much made himself into sort of the, the man marker of the main number nine. That's what he's been at, at Inter. And he's, he's such an odd player, Acerbi, because I think because he's 35 years old, because he is from a different generation slightly compared to all these young and exciting players on, on both teams, he sort of gets considered like a dinosaur, but he's not, you know, he's not Giorgio Chiellini. He's not in your face, like shouting and bellowing and roaring on you. He's, he's sort of awkward in the way that he looks and in the way that he sort of, he doesn't look imposing, I don't think, like you sort of think that traditional sentiment does. But what he does do is, is just read the game really well and, and, and get in your way and tread on your toes and, and be in those spaces and understand things. And I, I almost feel like at both ends of the pitch, if Inter are going to do this, it comes down to that sort of old, this is a terrible word, because we're talking about people who are younger than me, but old man wisdom of Acerbi at one end and Jekko at the other end, just reading the game well, just having seen enough of these sort of, having been around, been around long enough to see enough games to, to understand that it's, 
it's all football and and you can read it better. But yeah, I, I, I do think a Cherby versus Haaland is a fascinating battle and one that will define this, define Inter's chances from a starting point. Because of course, if Haaland scores three times, that's it, isn't it? It's weird because obviously Haaland is obviously the biggest threat that you're going to be going up against. But one thing that I have to say that Inzaghi is very good at, and there's been a lot of debate this week, I guess internally in my head, as to how good Inzaghi is, because he does thrill at certain moments. And at other times, I'm I'm not ent- entirely sure how I, I feel about him. But one thing I thought he did really well against Milan, and I'm not trying to compare you know, the, the level of technique offered in Milan to the one you know, by Manchester City, but I thought he had a really good plan to stop Rafael Leao. And obviously, we'll never really mm. see how good it was because Leao was coming back from injury. So we're not expecting him to be you know, at the time of full flow and at the best of his abilities. He wasn't in the finest form. But I thought that the tactical plan to cage him at the time was a really interesting one because there was there was plan A, there was plan B, and there was plan C. It was like how the midfielder was going to help, how the you know the how the they were going to contract. How there was just this whole plan to stop Rafael Leao, and it's much easier to do that when your team has sort of you know one or two great stars. I remember in a game in which sort of they were like um, defending against. Barcelona at the time and I, I don't remember who it was but it was like let them beat us with Neymar as long as we just take care of Messi so something you have to take risks you have to let sort of one person perhaps not have as much attention but with City it's like all right we can take care of Haaland and then there's Bernardo Silva or there's Ilkay Gundogan or there's like yeah. a thousand others that can come and do something special so I, I don't know if you know putting all your attention on Haaland yes of course you're going to have to do that and, and I feel like Acerbi can do that but Inter for me as much as they have managed some really good defending they're also a team that can sometimes concede a lot of goals like the three goals against Benfica the three goals against Barcelona in Camp Nou so defensively they're not the team that I would say yeah go out and play that that game I, I don't trust them to I don't trust them to defend immensely well I don't see this as a backline of what Juventus used to have for example what I do think they do have is actually an ability to score so I'm I'm hoping that at some point they can just score enough goals to make it a tense situation and and that's what we want because when it becomes tense it becomes a lot more even and channeling your emotions in the right way trying to make the most of because we have you know you have Chanelolu who can do something from a set piece or from a free kick or from distance he can have a shot from distance that can make the difference the logical thing to do is not to take Manchester City toe for toe and actually like play a possession game but rather sit a little bit deeper be you know the way that you would imagine this to go a pragmatic type of game and you counter attack they have enough of a direct threat to make the difference there it's just about whether or not, you know, how long their defense can really hold up against this and what they can do in the other end. And so this is more about efficiency and attack for me than it is about defensive prowess because I don't I don't know how much I trust this team. And my other question to you, one question I have for you is Milan Skriniar, if he's capable of playing in this game, would you bring him on? It's, it's such a difficult question, isn't it? I, I, Inzaghi sort of said that he was asked, being asked about whether you start Jekka or, or Lukaku alongside Lautaro, and uh, and he said, you know, I've I've got questions in attack, I've got questions in midfield, I've got questions in defence, and I think Skriniar has to be the, the big one at the back. For me personally, I I think it's been too long. I think it's been too long yeah. since he played, but I'm not 
there at training, Mina. You know, if, if Inzaghi's been watching him at training and thinks, no, he's he's sharp, like he looks like he does, then then Inzaghi will have a different perception of it. But but to me, it's just it's it's such a game to come into rusty. And, and you're you're dead right. Like Inter are such an odd team because they've kept five clean sheets in six Champions League knockout games. And you think, okay, that's like a good defensive side. They're not. They're not that. They're not a totally stable uh, defending team. Acerbi, as we said, has shown himself to be quite a good man marker. I think Bastoni has made some real strides this season in terms of being a defender who can come out and play the ball, who can sort of contribute going forwards. Of course, he played that brilliant ball for for Barella's score from uh, the first goal against uh, Benfica. So I like him a lot, but do I think he's a flawless defender? No. And mm. Matteo Damian, likewise, you know, he's he's someone who's been around and, and who I think has matured into a sort of solid, trustworthy person, but he's not a brilliant defender. And I do think that the chance for Inter, because Inter know they're not going to have most of the ball and, and they're comfortable with that. They've, they've played, even though in general in Serie A, they tend to hold more of the ball because they're one of the best teams in the league. They've played plenty of games with less of the ball. They did it even against um, Fiorentina. That, that They don't mind giving the ball up because they can do that you know, what, what Inzaghi's Lazio used to do. They can be a coiled spring. They can come out at you very fast. In fact, I think probably they'll relish that in this game. Yeah. But then it, it, it does rely on that ability to, to win the transitions. And I do think, funnily enough, the left-hand side for Inter, the right-hand side for City is going to define a lot of it because, because Di Marco has been so good going forward, because he is the guy who puts those good crosses in. And because Bastoni is behind him on that side, that is the side that I think Inter most naturally progress out of defence from. And I also think that Silva can get caught at the pitch. And I think that Kyle Walker can have very good games, but I'm not sure he always does. So I, I, I think that is one of the areas in which this game is going to be defined a bit is certainly how well Inter can transition defence to attack and whether they can turn those into genuinely dangerous moments when they do it. And I think for me, certainly, maybe I just maybe I just don't have a very high opinion of Denzel Dumfries and that's part of this, but I think the left-hand side is where Inter need to look to do it. My issue with that is actually, I think Kyle Walker did a really good job on Vinny. And this is the thing. I think that what was so good about that game- Very is- different though. That's a, that's a very different kind of threat. Vinicius Jr. is nothing like in terms of how he plays. He's better player, but he's very different in what he does to Di Marco. Di Marco's going to go to the, the sideline and, and put balls into the middle. I guess my question is, in, in all of this, is that Kyle Walker has enough to stop. That's what I'm, I'm afraid of. And I don't want them to rely on that side. I want them to have backup plans. And here's the thing I think Nzaki would. And I agree with you because you look at Dumfries and that's your other option, right? Because, you know, it's either Di Marco doing something or it's not. But I actually think no, I don't actually know what I think because I <laughs> sometimes I think fine, go through the middle, right? Because they're probably going to block that route with Kyle Walker. So you go through the middle. You're going to go through the middle if it's a perfect midfield, right? Like everywhere you look, it's so difficult when you're trying to analyze how to do it. The only way to do it really is with pace. Is a little bit of, um, I guess, what West Ham did with Jared Bowen yesterday. You know, it is like trying to, mm-hmm. to, to win the ball really quickly and charge forward. Like you said, you know, a spring. I, I, however, look at I look at this. I think to myself, you know, I I start off with being really optimistic about Inter's chances. Then I start talking to myself <laughs> and having a debate. And by the end of it, I'm like, no, that's it. It's a third loss, you know. And I'm, and I'm all of a sudden really depressed because I think of all the opportunities, and I don't know how it's possible that they can overcome it. The only thing that I always cling on to is that they don't enjoy themselves, Manchester City, when they play Spurs. Mm. 
they never enjoyed themselves against Spurs. Spurs was probably, you know, obviously under Antonio Conte, they were the most Italian team in the league. They're very direct, very vertical. And I think that that's what Inter need to be because that's always been, seemingly has been City's sort of failure, I guess, the one weakness which they have addressed and they have certainly improved upon. But that is, there is still a little bit of a chink in that armour. It's just about whether or not this is going to be an Inter side that has 28 shots and come out with one goal or has 28 shots and scores four of them. You know, and it, it's about efficiency going forward. And they really have to be able to be good with the atmosphere. I think that's the most important thing because I think both these sides are very emotional sides. Both Manchester City and Inter can be very emotional sides. And I think Inter have been really brilliant this season in Europe when it's come to dealing with that level of pressure. In the knockout games, they haven't shown us in any way to be frail. They went to Camp Nou and were happy to play their game. And honestly speaking, they should have won it. You know, it was that last minute with Aslani and it just didn't go to plan. But otherwise, I think that away from home, they haven't at all ever been gobbled up by their atmosphere. And that is what I think is something that they will need to show us. Because at their best, when they're interested, the only way I see into winning this is if they start off with the same madness that they started off in the match against Milan. High intensity, go for it, try to score a goal as quickly as possible before anyone settles down and then play your game. Sit back, counter. Uh, and I think that's the only way that I see it for me as them having a chance in this. I think like it's, there's, there's no way, like no one in the world thinks that Inter can win this game 3-0. Whereas we know City can win this game 3-0. Yeah. Right? Like that's a possibility. On, like the, on the scale of possible outcomes, Inter getting thumped is possible. Inter thumping Man City is not possible. No. So you you immediately like have an idea in your head of what kind of game that Inter can win. And it is a game which is probably not the most entertaining to watch that is about sort of essentially killing time for a good part of the game just because you know that like West Ham against Fiorentina, frankly, you know that you need to let them have the ball, but just be more ruthless than they are. This is what, I don't know if I'm the same as you, Mina. Maybe this is just because this is like, I, like you said at the start, like this is our, no one uh, is going to tell us we can't, you know, be happy as own right here on our podcast. <laughs> but I do think that what makes me think it's possible for Inter, and again, I'm not making them favourites, what makes me think it's possible is that I think that they are a team that can Aren't always, they weren't horrible at this for a while this season, but they can be a team that will beat you with their one shot because they have got Lautaro up front who, when he's on some, which he has been lately, can can do it because they have got Edin Dzeko who has been around the block enough times to know how to find that yard of space and score a volley at, at a corner like he did against Milan because they have got, even after that, Lukaku coming off the bench, they have got Chalanoglu who can score goals from midfield. They've got Barella, who's scored six goals in the league this season. They, they've got players everywhere who are capable of producing that. And I do think that in the admiration for City's quality, it sort of becomes easy to treat this Inter team like they're a bunch of chumps, which they aren't. I mean, those are really good players we're talking about there. And I think that's what makes me think it's, it's, it's possible. So maybe even talking about Di Marco and the left wing and all of it is a bit sort of futile because in the end, it's going to come down to being opportunistic. And, you know, we'll get to Fiorentina in a second, but like, I, I do think that one of the, 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 the stories that made that Fiorentina final in the end on the Boeing goal, I, I think there's tiredness is part of it. And you see mm. that Biragi pushing out is, is so tired and he's a step late in, in getting him offside. There are City players who are tired too. There's players at Inter who are tired. It's been a long season for everyone. 
But for instance, Rodri in the, in the FA Cup final looked tired. He looked at the end of the game like he was exhausted. And it's it's looking for those those moments of opportunity. That one player who takes a step too slow because he's tired, that's that's kind of what Inter probably need to live on is is where you find those moments, I think. I don't know, I mean, was there anything else that you sort of wanted to talk about this game? I mean, I think we could we could talk ourselves around in circles, but I don't know if there's anyone in particular we haven't mentioned who you, uh, who you were keen to talk about. Have you ever met Rodri? I haven't, no. So he was like standing like right there. And all I thought is you are so well built. <laughs> He's a very good looking man in real life. And I don't know why I'd never noticed Rodri <laughs> before. Um, but just you bringing him up and I was like, he is a very attractive man. And I guess I'd never seen that. Physically, <laughs> he is so well. He's like a statue. I can't explain it. All of the others are just so tiny I feel like if they were with me going to San Siro they would also be scared you know like like taking a taxi home but then there was Rodri and you just see this like other than Haaland who's also like obviously you know just this yes anyway um I guess my only question to you I I, I actually I actually like really get like I get where you're coming from because I think I really felt that like after the second leg of the semi-final I was thinking that about Dzeko like Dzeko she's like he should be like the one who looks sort of like you know older than everyone, like a bit more. So he doesn't, he looks, he looks so fresh. Like even at the end of a semi-final, or he came off in like the 66th minute or something, but he looks so fresh. And so like just athletic, even though they all look athletic, somehow he sort of has a different Stand spark out. to him that I can't explain until you see him in person. Yeah. I, I think certain people do still have that even amongst like elite athletes. Some people just sort of convey that sense of, I don't know what it is, like that sort of superpower about them. Yeah, it's like, it's a little bit like, you know, Bernardo Silva is the player that I would want most on my team. I mean, all of Man City is amazing, but I'm, I'm particularly fond of Bernardo Silva. And then you sort of look at him and I'm like, he kind of just looks like, I don't know how to explain, like a boy from school. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. I mean, it's like, it's just, you know, like a regular guy who's kind of not that much taller than me. You know what I mean? And then you see Rodri and it's, it is, it is different when you see that kind of like big athlete. And I, yeah, I totally see what you're saying about Jacob. I'm sorry, I do digress. I've totally taken this into a different question. All right, browse off. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to ask you is, would you start Lula? Because it looks like Dzeko might start. I would start Dzeko. I would start Dzeko because I think, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I I think that actually like his his know-how is really valuable here because I think Inter need to be smart. Again, they're not going to be the better team in this game, but they can be smart. And I think Dzeko is is smarter than Lukaku. Not as in like academic smarts. I have no idea how academically smart they are. I just think as a footballer, I think Dzeko, it's not even he's smarter than Lukaku. I think he's smarter than the vast majority of, of footballers because he's he's experienced so much, right? Like he's, he's won a league in Germany. He's scored 50 goals in... Three different. Uh, he's obviously won the league twice in 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 um, England, and and then he's come to Italy. He's got fifty goals in all three of those leagues. He's played in big Champions League nights. He's helped turn around a four one deficit against Barcelona. I think that's why Inzaghi has always gone to Jekyll on these nights, because actually, like just having been around the block enough times, and being someone who internalizes that as well, because I don't think all players do, but I think Jekyll really has like learned all the way through his career, gives you an ability to to make quick decisions on the pitch that is really valuable. And I think Jekyll makes snap decisions that are right a lot of the time. And I think that's really valuable to, to Inter. I also think the other side of it is 
which of the two do you want to bring off the bench? I think you want to bring Lukaku off the mm. bench because Lukaku is in that sort of good bulldozer form that he can get into where you think actually he could just score as a goal off the bench. And and I I think that I think that way around works. I do understand why you might think the other way because Lukaku and Lautaro have this understanding going back to the Conte days and it it, it clicks, it, it looks yeah. good. But I think I would like it the way that I think it will be, which is Dzeko first and then Lukaku second. You know, I came into this saying Lukaku in my head, but you've managed to convince me, all right, Dzeko should start. <laughs> also, it's like you said, also against a tiring midfield, I mean, and then to bring on Lukaku off the bench and have that partnership with Lautaro just spring into life could be very interesting towards the end of the competition. Mm-hmm. And Dzeko is somebody who can find space when there isn't any. So, yeah. Okay, I hope Nzaga is listening to this and <laughs> we're like, yes, my mind's made up. I'm going to start with Shekhar. Yes. <laughs> Nikki Amina said it, it must be right. We, sh- we should talk about the Conference League final, but let's get a quick prediction, Mina. I'll put you on the spot. What's the final score on Saturday? Inter 2-1. All right, I'll say 1-0. <laughs> but still to Inter, there you go. Unanimous vote. It's going to be Inter. What could go wrong? I think it's a penalty at the end. They managed to get into the heads of all the City players, you know. I, I just hope that they get into the heads of City players and not the other way around where Berrell is going to be lifting his arms in anger. <laughs> you know? And then it just starts yeah. to fall down. So let it be this way, guys. Be smart. You know, Italians, I was going to say Italians don't lose finals, but they are. So come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Conference League final was very sad from a Fiorentina perspective. Yeah. I, I, I can't help but feel a bit heartbroken for them because it was such an extraordinary season. Again, 60 games, their longest ever season in terms of number of games played. They went to two cup finals and in the end, they lost both of them 2-1. I was saying it earlier for me, this, I mean, for me, this game really came down to, to those moments and fine margins and and the, the the two goals that Fiorentini conceded, the first is a handball by Biragi. For me, it is a handball. I, I know there was a big debate about it online, but actually the more I looked at it, the more I thought, it's a I'm not even sure under the old rules that that would be under question. You know, he moves his hand towards the ball. It pushes it away from a striker inside the box. It's a handball. It's, it's a bummer, but it's a handball. Mm-hmm. Then the last goal was just such a shame because... As said, Biragi, who's played 51 games this season, just doesn't step up quite as quickly as the rest of the Fiorentina back line. And that lets Bowen get through and and be onside. Look, I, I've already said this on, on the Guardian podcast. Hats off to West Ham. It's a wonderful moment for them. I was hard not to be swept up in the joy of, of Bowen and, and Moyes and everything for them. Mm. But this is an Italian football podcast, so let's see it from the Italian side. Yeah, a, a real gut-wrenching moment for Biragi. I thought Mina and I don't know, did you think that Fiorentina should have approached the game differently? It's a difficult one because I wasn't really fond of the decision to start with Jovic. You know, I know that he had that chance at the very end of the first half and obviously he scored a goal Mm. that was ruled offside. But I would have started with Cabral. I think it was the right decision. I think Fiorentina played better in the second half when they didn't in fact have him on the pitch um, and he could make a difference. Bonaventura is a player I really enjoy watching. I forget sometimes how much I enjoy watching mm. him because he sort of always slips out of my mind when I think of players that I enjoy watching, but he's definitely one of them. That goal that he scored and the, the way that they responded so quickly after the penalty I thought was fabulous. I can't really, I guess in many ways, um, attack Italiano. 
I was a little bit disappointed at how many Fiorentina fans, at least on Twitter, did. Um, and I, it started to make me wonder about Italian football fans because I think they're just out there, like always yelling at their coaches, even though they've reached finals that they probably never imagined to reach, you know? Um, so I always find it difficult when people are upset with their coaches. I don't know what I would fault them for. They were the top scoring team. They're up against a side. I mean, they make what, 25 million from revenue and broadcasting and West Ham make nearly 200. I mean, there's a vast difference in financials, you know, they, they have a very good squad. Don't get me wrong, but I, I do think I understand that even if they played the better football, I do think teams that play sometimes anti-football, as some of the commentators on Sky Italia referred to it, I don't think it was anti-football, but you know what they're like. Um, sometimes, you know, that's all you need, right? You just need to know how to spring the offside trap. You just need to be just that bit more switched on at the end. And like you said, Fiorentina had taken part in so many different games. Their season started on August the 18th. They had to qualify for everything. Um, it's been really long and hard and they don't have the squad depth that others can enjoy. And so that has been something for them, unfortunately. And these things happen, but you, like you said, it's fine margins. It's, it's not just the number of games as well. Like they played at the weekend, West Ham didn't. West Ham got to go and have like a, a weekend sort of training camp True. for the game in the Algarve, whereas uh, Fiorentina had a game at the weekend. And I think that, that you know, is a sort of an imbalance in, in the matchup, like everyone knows it's hard to play two games in a week. Footballers talk about it all the time, playing two games a week all week. And so getting that week off, I think, I don't know, in a game that comes down to that, that comes down to, if you just step up quicker, that's offside. It was hard for me not to think that that was at least a, a factor in things. Also, Biragi, I was going to say his performance sort of took a hit after he took a hit, you know, and, and I just think yeah, that kind of stuff, I don't want to be watching that in a final, you know, like these both see, these sides haven't played, sorry, haven't won a European final since the 1960s. Like this is a grand occasion to go and do that. So I'm really, it's a shame that you have fans out there who will try to ruin this in the way that they have and behave in the, in the fashion that they did. And I just... But I mean, it had an effect, right? Because that's all that it needed to do because Beragi just wasn't the same player after that. And I can completely understand. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard not to sort of think, how does that impact you? Like, how does that change um, your, even in subtle ways, like just your, your frame of mind the rest of the game. But the fact that he ends up being the man at the heart of both of the big things that go wrong for Fiorentina is, is certainly like, feels extra horrible. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's disgraceful uh, what, what went on is it's, I, I can't enter into the mindset of someone who spends a large amount of money to go travel to another country just as, to do that, to, to, to then you've got footballers who've been spending their entire year building up to something. And you know that because you support one of the teams and, and to try to sort of just, I mean, physically assault them. That's what that is, throwing something at someone's head to cut it open. And I also think it's, it's disgraceful that there wasn't really seemingly much plan for how to respond to it inside the stadium. I mean, there were cups thrown, yeah. several cups thrown at a corner minutes before the one, the, I don't think it was a cup, I think it was something else that they hit Bragi and actually cut him. But minutes before the incident that ends up with him being cut, there were already cups being thrown and, and nothing happens. It's not impossible as a, a stadium operator or a governing body responsible for the stadium operator to, to have rules in place and to have firm statements like, well, we're stopping the match if this happens, and you could even impose a forfeit if it, if you keep doing it. You 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 should be at a minimum as the governing body 
guaranteeing the physical safety of your players. That's that's a minimum. And even at the end of the game, when West Ham was celebrating, there was a bunch of West Ham fans who were on the pitch who shouldn't have been there, who didn't get removed. I mean, there was one point when Boehm was doing a post-game interview and he physically shoves away a fan who's a West Ham fan, but who's sort of interrupting his interview. And you just think, at a minimum, you've got to guarantee the players on the pitch better security than that. And yeah, I, I think that was really disappointing in, in a lot of different directions. And to, to preempt some of the whataboutery that I saw on Twitter last night, this is not a partisan thing. There were some Fiorentina fans in Prague who conducted themselves horrendously, fans or ultras, whatever you would prefer to call them. But there was a group that were you know, starting fights, attacking um, West Ham fans outside a pub who got arrested. It's all horrid, but none of that is Biragi's fault. Biragi wasn't outside the pub fighting West Ham fans, right? So he's the one who's had his night in a final that he spent the whole season working towards violated. And I, I, I find it, yeah, it's horrendous. Yeah, it is. It is horrendous. Um, so it's a little bit, I understand Italiano is obviously very disappointed because he's lost two finals, but he did came out, come out afterwards and said, you know, I blasted Igor because, you know, he should have run and, and tracked his marker quicker. And I know this sounds crazy, but is it fair to say that sometimes you watch a game and you change your mind about a particular coach? And I know it seems like a very hot take, yeah. <laughs> but you're kind of like, you know, I love Italiano. I think you're that turning on him, Mina. I think he's brilliant. I do have always a problem with coaches who, and this is kind of the problem I had with Maurizio Sarri as well, where their plan needs to be followed perfectly and mistakes obviously end up in losses. I, I do have issues with that. I like, I guess one of the reasons why I do like Inzaghi or why I've liked others is because they know that mistakes are part of sort of the game and they have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D as to if a defender does get away from you, then what is the what is the next plan? Because there are going to be mistakes. You can't always be perfect. Fatigue is an issue. And I guess sometimes he likes, as well as Mario he likes to play the perfect game in which you are perfectly concentrated and you watch, you play your tactics according to your plan. And they don't really take into account that they are human beings and that mistakes will happen. And so, for example, like when I look at Izagi and his plan for layout, it was like, right, you know, you're my first point of contact. If he gets away from you, then you're going to be the guy that steps in and does this. And if he gets away from you, then this is what's going to happen. And I feel like there's always a plan there to try to come up with the, the potential of mistakes. And it's not about always being 90% you know, hundred percent, sorry, switched on where sometimes you understand that you ebb and flow in a game. And I, and I sometimes think that Italiano takes too many risks with the way that he plays football and where there is a potential of that happening. And he turns around and says, well, you know, like I blasted Igor, he should have gotten there quicker. I blasted this. And I understand his disappointment, but I also need him to understand that he, he needs to play a style of football at times that is just that bit more pragmatic, you know? Um, especially when, like you said, they played three days earlier or four days earlier, however long it was. And, and so they are somewhat exhausted. And I love his style of football and I love the way that he trains. And I do think that every year he gets better and better. And when I say pragmatic, I don't mean defensive. I just mean allowing yourself mistakes and overcoming that. And so that is something that I, I keep going back and forth when it comes to Italiano, because I, I think that he's just such a tremendous coach, but there's just things about him that I, I think he asks too much. That's all. That's all. There's so many individual stories in his stories. Now you mentioned Bonaventura and I'm, I'm heartbroken for him because yeah. I think he's sort of one of those players who's really sort of 
he's not been lucky in his career. Um, no. I think he went to Milan at a time when Milan were all over the place and and was sort of the one reliable piece in that puzzle for a long time and and really sort of grew and adapted as a player, went from being this winger at Atlanta into something more versatile and central to the team. And then, you know, he gets to this stage and he scores a brilliant goal and you think maybe it's his moment to finally, finally get to celebrate after this um you know, the, the two big injuries as well in the middle of his career and and get something and it doesn't happen for him. So I was definitely heartbroken for him. I thought Amrabah had a great game and and reminds us of, of how good he was in the in the World Cup. And there were, there were lots of great performances for, for Fiorentina. It's been a, an incredible season for them, even so, but I know that's not going to be much consolation after losing a cup final, is it? Well, they might make it into the conference league if Juventus is knocked out by UEFA. So... There's still there's still hope they can have a chance at European football, you know? We'll see next season if they can do better. There is. And at time of recording, no word yet on whether Italiano is off to Napoli, which lots of people have assumed. De Laurentiis um, was saying uh, in his most recent comments, well, again, it's, I'm not, not thinking about Italiano. It's disrespectful to think about someone who's under contract. And on my list of 10 has grown to 22 and now to 40 coaches. We'll see. I think he's, he, he, fits the, he fits the bill, but no guarantees. We'll find out. I tell you where there has been some movement, uh, Mina, is at Milan. Paolo Maldini, gone. And Ibrahim Diaz not having his, um, the option taken up to turn his loan into a permanent deal. Big changes at Milan. Let's start with Maldini because I think that's what everyone's talking about. What do you make of this, Mina? And, and do you want to give people a bit more context on, on what happened? Well, here's the thing. There's a lot of conflicting, review, uh, conflicting news out there as to the reasons behind the fractured relationship between Milan's new management and Maldini and Masada. So obviously, as we know, there's been growing tension apparently between management and between Maldini. Not apparently. I think it's been there for some time. And the reasons behind it are interesting to me because they've all been very different. I've literally not spoken. I've spoken to two people and both of them told me such different things. I'm like, don't know where the real stuff is. You know, when I say people, I mean like one of them is a journalist who's followed me around all their life, you know? And so I was like, you're, you're going to know because you speak to these guys every day. And he's like, no, this is what it is. And then someone else told me something entirely different. So the news right now is actually the fractured relationship is because, you know, at the end of the day, Maldini wants to have more control, wants to be able to have a lot more investment, to be able to pick the right players. And Cardinali had said to him, who is the new owner of Milan, had said to him, uh, I want to do things my way. I'd like you to stay, but to be sort of the man in between the players and management, but not have the control that you have right now where you're going and choosing the players and scouting and negotiating on our behalf. That was rejected outright from Maldini. Uh, he obviously isn't interested in a role that basically is, is, is there. He's not really actually doing anything. And he was like, nope, that's not what I want to do. He feels that in order to grow and plan um, a brighter future for Milan, he needs to have better investment and more support from the powers that be. And Cardinale has chosen a different route to that. Cardinale is a man who's more interested in somebody like uh, Moncada. That's it. Somebody who is, uh, who obviously is a great scout, who studies the opponents, who has a specific algorithm for how he chooses certain players. Obviously, the man who worked at Monaco and had um, 
looked and studied Mbappe and chose him to be the guy that they should bet on. Um, he's into data. He has uh, this this perfect plan to obviously do things at low cost and understand a human being, not just the player, but rather his relations. And he wants to bet on that rather than Maldini and Masada. Others have obviously pointed out to the fact that the tension as well had a lot to do with Pioli, um, which at the time I was quite stunned at because, you know, you Pioli is the man that Maldini bet on. He's the man that he wanted and pleaded with management to make sure that Ranić wasn't the man, but rather Pioli stayed in power. And now there are obviously question marks about the relationship between Maldini and Stefano Pioli. I think Maldini feels like some players could have been offered a bit more of an opportunity just to see what they were like. And Pioli sort of outright didn't play a lot of these guys in a consistent level or gave them enough time to prove themselves um, and rejected the players that Maldini had chosen on the transfer market. I understand that sometimes a coach and Maldini won't always be on the same page and they will have differences in, in, in opinion. But I, that was one of the theories floated as to why Cardinale left, uh, chose to, to, and so, sorry, chose to sack Maldini. I can't imagine that the situation was bad enough for that to be the decision. So I, I find that really hard to believe. So this is the line that I was fed at that point, And it's, it's, it's actually noted um, in Gazetta as well. And I find that difficult to believe. I, don't, I just cannot imagine that Purely would be like, yeah, I don't really want to work with you anymore. <laughs> Purely like the world's number one company man, you know. I know that yeah. there are things like, you know, you know, Maldini is not somebody who wants to bow down to the ultras, whereas Purely does. You know, there, there's going to be differences in opinion. And Purely's right to not like the transfer market or the players that he was given. And Maldini is also right to think that the other, everyone has an opinion. And I'm sure that they disagree many times, but I cannot believe that the tensions are so bad that they want to separate. But Kazin Ali should be allowed to, I guess, in many ways, see his vision realized even if many of us think it's a, it's a poor route to take. Maldini at the end, end of the day is in the fabric of Milan. He represents Milan. He's the symbol of Milan. And I think that when you say see so many players like Rafael Leal, Teo Hernandez, Ben Acer come out and be so sad, it tells you something about what he offers, uh, not just from a management perspective. I know we always talk about Maldini and his ability to scout or bring in the right players or what he saw in Junior Messias and so on and so forth. But I do want to say that you cannot downplay the importance of having someone like that on your side. To have someone like that who is happy to have an espresso with a player to ally their fears, to be their friend, especially someone like Tomori, for example, who really benefited from having that relationship with Maldini. And I think that they're really going to miss that. And I think they've not realized his importance enough. And it's all good to make money, but it's more important to keep the soul of the club together. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that last point is so important, Mina. I think the number of players that I've spoken to or, or, or heard in other interviews talking about the fact that Maldini was and then deciding to come to the club, the impact that, that he has just by being around, not, you know, someone, not someone you talk to every day, like purely, but just the, the sort of someone you can go to for words of wisdom. Sometimes I think it's a big loss for Milan, whatever the reasons behind it. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it's going to, to hurt the club's recruitment this summer, honestly, although I think you can also accept that doesn't mean that Maldini Masada are above, above criticism. Obviously they're going to take, carry the can in a big way if De Catalara doesn't improve. And the, the Catalara situation is now very interesting, isn't it? Because with Brahim Diaz gone, suddenly the onus is even more on him to become the player they hoped he would. 
I, I think there's some real work needs to be done by Milan if they're going to be competitive next season in terms of bolstering that attack. It was already too thin and Diaz going does not help. So tough summer coming up for them. At Juventus, Max Allegri has been confirmed. He's going to be back, Mina. Um, <laughs> she can't even. She can't even keep a straight face. She's just immediately gone. No, I just. I feel like the fans are about to top themselves any minute now. <laughs> just, I find it all very entertaining. I mean, if, if you would think there's funerals <laughs> happening in Turin with some of the fans, and you know, someone said it's the worst season of his life, and I'm like, yeah, sure, buddy, you know. Um, or if he stays, it will be the worst season of his life. And I, and I just feel like, gosh, it's like you've just told them you have to make do with, you know, Roy Hodgson. Oh, poor Roy. He's very good. <laughs> you know what I mean? But this is what I feel like now fans have been elevated to like such importance that they have the right to sort of give monologues to, to the team before a Champions League game, like at Milan, where their opinion matters more than anything, where they get to dictate, you know, who stays and who leaves. and. And at the end of the day, maybe Juventus will get it wrong or whatever it is. But do you have the money to pay to sack Allegri? Has he done the world's worst job? I mean, they still finished third on the pitch. Sul Campo, they got the points, right? So, and they've navigated themselves in a very tricky situation. But he is staying probably right to have started from scratch. But if you don't have a lot of money, then you need to build on your foundations. I guess they feel like it's better to just stick with Allegri um, for a little bit more time and see what can happen. I don't know what the choices are because if you want a top-level coach, he's not going to choose Juventus right now. They're out of of the Champions League. They're even out of the Europa League. Not that that was going to entice somebody like Zinedine Zidane. Um, but um, what that means for the future of certain players, I think, is also something that's overly exaggerated about sort of this break in the dressing room. Federico Chiesa has been somebody that has been spoken about and his relationship with Allegri has been spoken about for many years. And actually, he was specifically asked about how he felt about Allegri sort of three months into Allegri's tenure when he came back. And he said, I've never had a problem with him, but people always make a lot of it at the time. And this is after he had done this tremendous, um, played this tremendous game against Chelsea friend of the show, Adriano Del Monte, tells us that he is very unhappy. And I believe that I can understand why Chiesa would be unhappy with Allegri. And that could well be like, a, a you know, that's going to be a problem between them. Chiesa has said that he's staying, Allegri is staying. So they're going to have to find a way of playing, of, of being together. But at the end of the day, Chiesa is a great player, but he hasn't done anything yet. I mean, and by that, I mean, he hasn't won something yet to have this much power where people are like now thinking of him as like, the star that deserves everything in life. I'm not entirely sure of yet. I do think there's so much that he needs to learn. And then people over sort of look how many mistakes that he does make and how selfish he can be and how many different people have spoken about that. And yes, Antonio Cassano is one of them and he seems to have something to say about everyone. But you have to note what... Yes, Cassano's job now is having an opinion on everyone. <laughs> and everyone. I mean, he's somebody who called him selfish. If you look at Bonucci saying he's growing, he's learning how to... But he is somebody who sort of lives too much for his own individual quality, and for his own individual ability on the ball. Being part of a team is very different to that. I mean, that was something that Teva spoke about, right? Because under Antonio Conte, Conte saw him as a potential to be turned into a beast, somebody who can score tons of goals. Under Allegri, he was actually taught to be more part of the team and play with Morata, improve Morata, and ended up being really good for both of them in the end. So it is about working together. 
a lot was made of the relationship with Chesney, but Chesney actually is a huge Allegri fan. I know that, you know, he's somebody who doesn't like the style of football. He came out after the Europa League and spoke about it. But Chesney is also indebted to Allegri because, and, and actually even Fabio Paratici, because at the time Donnarumma was free and they were thinking of going for him, but they believed, Allegri believed in Chesney, Paratici believed in Chesney. And he feels very much like um, he's loyal to the, well, he's definitely loyal to Allegri. So he may speak about him, but it doesn't mean he's against him. Rabiot is thinking of extending because of uh, Allegri. And so, but of course, Vlaovic hasn't shown us his best. I don't know how he feels. Like right now, Juventus probably won't be in Europe and he's come to win trophies. He's come to do something special. But he also came because he told us he's a Juventus fan. So which is it? <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see. I don't know which way it's going to go. I, I hope it gets better. The situation is diabolical um, at the moment in many different ways, just from a economic point of view or from you know sporting point of view. But I'm hopeful because if Gentori doesn't arrive now, he'll arrive in a year's time. And you can't always be at the top of your game. I think it's normal sometimes that there are cycles for teams and it takes a while to rebuild those cycles like we're seeing with Barcelona and they've just gone back to winning the league. And you never know what will happen in the future. There's still so many more things we could get to today, but I need to speed us towards a conclusion. So I'm just going to quickly rattle through some things that have happened since we last won together. Gian Piero Gasperini, like Allegri, uh, looks like he's going to be staying at Atlanta. Has obviously had the chat. He needed to have about what the plans for the club were and is, is like what he heard. Did talk about some of these in voice notes. Um, Ibrahimovic is retiring and had his big send off, Claudia as well. Obviously, we've got the play out coming out between Spezia and Verona, the relegation playoff. Um, that's happening on Sunday, we now know, and uh, 7.45 p.m. UK time. Adjust accordingly, according to where you are in the world, 8.45 p.m. UK time. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Oh, I think I think Verona, but I'm not confident. Um, I don't know, Spezia. I almost feel like Verona maybe might, I've just said that I think Verona, because they've got more about them, but I think they might also be weighed down by that feeling that they should be the team that was already safe, having blown it on the second last weekend. So maybe that will undo them but um yeah 90 minutes then penalties is is how it's going to play out um and we'll talk about that on monday there's so much that we can talk about with the transfer window uh sergey milinkovic savic not staying at lazio it's expected contracts going to be up so where's he headed um how does abraham's uh crucial ligament injury affect almost transfer opportunities we'll talk about those things on monday quick mention to the italy under 20 team who will play South Korea in the semi-finals of the World Cup? Forza Zuri. So, you know, if we don't get any European winners, maybe Mina will get an under-20 World Cup winner. We'll see. And so that's it for today. Mina, I think you've got a couple of shout-outs for us. Yes, we just want to welcome two new Tifosi members. Uh, hello and welcome to Alexander Hinao and to Matthew Hood. Hello and welcome to the Serie Chronicles podcast. We hope you enjoy staying with us. That's all we have time for today, but we will be back on Monday to review, obviously, more of what happened in the Champions League. Um, hopefully, we will be celebrating and completely drunk um, <laughs> rather than crying yet again. We will also be coming to you with our views on the relegation playoff. Should be very interesting. 
do find us on Twitter at Nikki Bandini, at Mina Rizuki, and of course at Serie Cron Pod. And subscribe to Serie Chronicles on YouTube for clips and short videos of the show. Thank you so much for listening and ciao for now. Helping myself to a large glass or something at the end of this week, one way or another, because I am exhausted already and it's only Thursday. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of over it, to be honest with you. I feel like I don't even want to watch this one. <laughs> like, I'm like, I definitely oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the game. I'm really looking forward to the game. I just want to be done with these preview pieces. Yesterday, I started work at 6 a.m. I don't mean got up. I mean, I started writing at 6 a.m. and I oh my finished working when the stand thing finished at 11 p.m. That was a day. Sports Social Podcast Network.